Chapter Twenty One of Eldorado by Baroness Orzy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in August two thousand and seven. Chapter Twenty One, Back to Paris. It was an exceptionally dark night, and the rain was falling in torrents. Sir Andrew Folks, wrapped in a piece of sacking, had taken shelter right underneath the coal cart. Even then, he was getting wet through to the skin. He had worked hard for two days, coal heaving and the night before he had found a cheap, squalid lodging, where, at any rate, he was protected from the inclemencies of the weather. But to-night he was expecting Blakeney at the appointed hour in place. He had secured a cart of the ordinary ramshackle pattern used for carrying coal. Unfortunately there were no covered ones to be obtained in the neighbourhood, and equally unfortunately the thaw had set in with a blustering wind and driving rain, which made waiting in the open air for hours at a stretch and in complete darkness excessively unpleasant. But for all these discomforts, Sir Andrew Folks cared not one jot. In England, in his magnificent Suffolk home, he was a confirmed Sybarite, in whose service every description of comfort and luxury had to be enrolled. Here to-night, in the rough and tattered clothes of a coal-heaver, drenched to the skin, and crouching under the body of a cart that hardly sheltered him from the rain, he was as happy as a schoolboy out for a holiday. Happy, but vaguely anxious. He had no means of ascertaining the time. So many of the church-bells and clock-towers had been silenced recently, that not one of those welcome sounds penetrated to the dreary desolation of this canal-wharf, with its abandoned carts standing ghost-like in a row. Darkness had set in very early in the afternoon, and the heavers had given up work soon after four o'clock. For about an hour after that a certain animation had still reigned around the wharf, men crossing and going, one or two of the barges moving in or out alongside the quay. But for some time now darkness and silence had been the masters in this desolate spot, and that time had seemed to Sir Andrew an eternity. He had hobbled and tethered his horse, and stretched himself out at full length under the cart. Now and again he had crawled out from under this uncomfortable shelter, and walked up and down in ankle-deep mud, trying to restore circulation in his stiffened limbs. Now and again a kind of torpor had come over him, and he had fallen into a brief and restless sleep. He would at this moment have given half his fortune for knowledge of the exact time. But through all this weary waiting, he was never for a moment in doubt. Unlike Armand Saint-Just, he had the simplest, most perfect faith in his chief. He had been Blakeney's constant companion in all these adventures for close upon four years now. The thought of failure, however vague, never once entered his mind. He was only anxious for his chief's welfare. He knew that he would succeed but he would have liked to have spared him much of the physical fatigue and the nerve-racking strain of these hours that lay between the daring deed and the hope of safety. Therefore he was conscious of an acute tingling of his nerves, which went on even during the brief patches of fitful sleep, and through the numbness that invaded his whole body, while the hours dragged wearily and slowly along. Then, quite suddenly, he felt wakeful and alert. Quite a while, even before he heard the welcome signal, he knew with a curious subtle sense of magnetism that the hour had come, and that his chief was somewhere near by, not very far. Then he heard the cry, a seamew's call, repeated thrice at intervals, and five minutes later something loomed out of the darkness quite close to the hind wheels of the cart. St Fuchs! came in a soft whisper, scarce louder than the wind. Present! came in quick response. Here, help me lift the child into the cart. He is asleep, and has been a dead weight on my arm for close on an hour now. Have you a dry bit of sacking or something to lay him on? Not very dry, I'm afraid." With tender care the two men lifted the sleeping little King of France into the rickety cart. 
Blakeney laid his cloak over him, and listened for a while to the slow, regular breathing of the child. "'Saint Just is not here. You know that?' said Sir Andrew after a while. "'Yes, I knew it,' replied Blakeney curtly. It was characteristic of these two men that not a word about the adventure itself, about the terrible risks and dangers of the past few hours, was exchanged between them. The child was here, and was safe, and Blakeney knew the whereabouts of Saint Just. That was enough for Sir Andrew Foulkes, the most devoted follower, the most perfect friend the Scarlet Pimpernel would ever know. Foulkes now went to the horse, detached the nose-bag, and undid the nooses of the hobble and of the tether. "'Will you get in now, Blakeney?' he said. "'We are ready.' and in unbroken silence they both got into the cart, Blakeney sitting on its floor beside the child, and Foulkes gathering the reins in his hands. The wheels of the cart and the slow jog-trot of the horse made scarcely any noise in the mud of the roads. What noise they did make was effectually drowned by the soughing of the wind in the bare branches of the stunted acacia-trees that edged the towpath along the line of the canal. Sir Andrew had studied the topography of this desolate neighbourhood well during the past twenty-four hours. He knew of a detour that would enable him to avoid the La Villette gate, and the neighbourhood of the fortifications, and yet bring him out soon on the road leading to Saint-Germain. Once he turned to ask Blakeney the time. "'It must be close on ten now,' replied Sir Percy. "'Push your nag along, old man. Tony and Hastings will be waiting for us.' It was very difficult to see clearly even a metre or two ahead, but the road was a straight one, and the old nag seemed to know it almost as well and better than her driver. She shambled along at her own pace, covering the ground very slowly for folks' burning impatience. Once or twice he had to get down and lead her over a rough piece of ground. They passed several groups of dismal, squalid houses, in some of which a dim light still burned, and as they skirted Saint-Ouen, the church clock slowly tolled the hour of midnight. But for the greater part of the way, derelict, uncultivated spaces of terrain vague, and a few isolated houses lay between the road and the fortifications of the city. The darkness of the night, the late hour, the soughing of the wind, were all in favour of the adventurers, and a coal-cart slowly trudging along in this neighbourhood, with two labourers sitting in it, was the least likely of any vehicle to attract attention. Past Clichy they had to cross the river by the rickety wooden bridge that was unsafe even in broad daylight. They were not far from their destination now. Half a dozen kilometres further on they would be leaving Gourbois on their left, and then the signpost would come in sight. After that, the spinney just off the road, and the welcome presence of Tony, Hastings, and the horses. Folks got down in order to make sure of the way. He walked at the horse's head now, fearful lest he missed the crossroads and the signpost. The horse was getting overtired. It had covered fifteen kilometres, and it was close on three o'clock of Monday morning. Another hour went by in absolute silence. Folks and Blakeney took turns at the horse's head. Then at last they reached the crossroads. Even through the darkness the signpost showed white against the surrounding gloom. "'This looks like it,' murmured Sir Andrew. He turned the horse's head sharply towards the left, down a narrower road, and leaving the signpost behind him. He walked slowly along for another quarter of an hour. Then Blakeney called a halt. "'The spinney must be sharp on our right now,' he said. He got down from the cart, and while folks remained beside the horse he plunged into the gloom. A moment later the cry of the sea-mew rang out three times into the air. It was answered almost immediately. The spinney lay on the right of the road. Soon the soft sounds that to a trained ear invariably betrayed the presence of a number of horses reached folk's straining senses. He took his old nag out of the shafts, and the shabby harness from off her. Then he turned her out onto a piece of wasteland that faced the spinney. Someone would find her in the morning, her and the cart with the shabby harness laid in it 
and having wondered if all these things had perchance dropped down from heaven, would quietly appropriate them, and mayhap thank much maligned heaven for its gift. Blakeney, in the meanwhile, had lifted the sleeping child out of the cart. Then he called to Sir Andrew, and led the way across the road and into the spinney. Five minutes later, Hastings received the uncrowned King of France in his arms. Unlike folks, my Lord Tony wanted to hear all about the adventure of this afternoon. A thorough sportsman, he loved a good story of hair-breadth escapes, of dangers cleverly avoided, risks taken and conquered. "'Just in ten words, Blakeney,' he urged entreatingly, "'how did you actually get the boy away?' Sir Percy laughed, despite himself, at the young man's eagerness. "'Next time we meet, Tony,' he begged, "'I am so demmed fatigued, and there's this beastly rain. No, no, now!' while Hastings sees to the horses. I could not exist long without knowing, and we are well sheltered from the rain under this tree. Well, then, since you will have it, he began with a laugh, which, despite the weariness and anxiety of the past twenty-four hours, had forced its way to his lips. I have been sweeper and man-of-all work at the temple for the past few weeks, you must know. No! ejaculated my lord Tony lustily. By gum! "'Indeed, you old sybarite, whilst you were enjoying yourself heaving coal on the canal-wharf, I was scrubbing floors, lighting fires, and doing a number of odd jobs for a lot of demmed, murdering villains. And,' he added under his breath, incidentally, too, for our league. "'Whenever I had an hour or two off duty, I spent them in my lodgings, and asked you all to come and meet me there.' "'By gad, Blakeney! Then the day before yesterday, when we all met. I had just had a bath, sorely needed, I can tell you.' I had been cleaning boots half the day, but I had heard that the Simons were removing from the temple on the Sunday, and had obtained an order from them to help them shift their furniture. "'Cleaning boots!' murmured my lord Tony, with a chuckle. "'Well, and then?' "'Well, then, everything worked out splendidly. You see, by that time I was a well-known figure in the temple. Heron knew me well. I used to be his lantern-bearer, when at nights he visited that poor mite in his prison. It was Dupont here, Dupont there, all day long.' Light the fire in the office, Dupont. Dupont, brush my coat. Dupont, fetch me a light. When the Simon wanted to move their household goods, they called loudly for Dupont. I got a covered laundry cart, and I brought a dummy with me to substitute for the child. Simon himself knew nothing of this, but Madame was in my pay. The dummy was just splendid, with real hair on its head. Madame helped me to substitute it for the child. We laid it on the sofa and covered it over with a rug, even while those brutes Heron and Cochefer were on the landing outside and we stuffed His Majesty the King of France into a linen basket. The room was badly lighted, and any one would have been deceived. No one was suspicious of that type of trickery, so it went off splendidly. I moved the furniture of the Simon out of the tower. His Majesty King Louis the Seventeenth was still concealed in the linen basket. I drove the Simon to their new lodgings. The man still suspects nothing, and there I helped them to unload the furniture, with the exception of the linen basket, of course. After that I drove my laundry-cart to a house I knew of, and collected a number of linen-baskets which I had arranged should be in readiness for me. Thus, loaded up, I left Paris by the Vincennes Gate, and drove as far as Bagnolet, where there is no road except past the Octroi, where the officials might have proved unpleasant. So I lifted His Majesty out of the basket, and we walked on hand in hand in the darkness and the rain, until the poor little feet gave out. Then the little fellow, who has been wonderfully plucky throughout, indeed more a capé than a bourbon, snuggled up in my arms and went fast asleep, and—and, and, well, I think that's all, for here we are, you see." "'But if Madame Simon had not been amenable to bribery?' suggested Lord Tony, after a moment's silence. "'Then I should have had to think of something else. If, during the removal of the furniture, Heron had remained resolutely in the room?' 
Then, again, I should have had to think of something else. But remember that in life there is always one supreme moment when chance, who is credited to have but one hair on her head, stands by you for a brief space of time. Sometimes that space is infinitesimal, one minute, a few seconds, just the time to seize chance by that one hair. So I pray you all give me no credit in this, or any other matter in which we all work together, but the quickness of seizing chance by the hair during the brief moment when she stands by my side. If Madame Simon had been unamenable, if Heron had remained in the room all the time, if Cochefer had had two looks at the dummy instead of one, well then, something else would have helped me. Something would have occurred. Something—I know not what, but surely something which chance meant to be on our side, if only we were quick enough to seize it. And so you see how simple it all is. So simple, in fact, that it was sublime. The daring, the pluck, the ingenuity, and above all, the superhuman heroism and endurance, which rendered the hearers of this simple narrative simply told, dumb with admiration. Their thoughts were now beyond verbal expression. "'How soon was the hue and cry for the child about the streets?' asked Tony, after a moment's silence. "'It was not out when I left the gates of Paris,' said Blakeney meditatively. So quietly has the news of the escaped been kept, that I am wondering what devilry that brute heron can be after. And now no more chattering, he continued lightly. All to horse, and you, Hastings, have a care. The destinies of France, mayhap, will be lying asleep in your arms. But you, Blakeney? exclaimed the three men almost simultaneously. I am not going with you. I entrust the child to you. For God's sake, guard him well. Ride with him to Mantes. You should arrive there about ten o'clock. One of you then go straight to number nine, rue de la Tour. Ring the bell. An old man will answer it. Say the one word to him, enfant. He will reply, de roi. Give him the child, and may heaven bless you all for the help you have given me this night. But you, Blakeney, reiterated Tony, with a note of deep anxiety in his fresh young voice. I am straight for Paris, he said quietly. Impossible. Therefore, feasible. But why? Percy, in the name of heaven, do you realise what you are doing? Perfectly. They'll not leave a stone unturned to find you. They know by now, believe me, that your hand did this trick. I know that. And yet you mean to go back? And yet I am going back. Blakeney! It's no use, Tony. Armand is in Paris. I saw him in the corridor of the Temple Prison in the company of Chauvelin. Great God! exclaimed Lord Hastings. The others were silent. What was the use in arguing? One of themselves was in danger. Armand Saint-Just, the brother of Marguerite Blakeney. Was it likely that Percy would leave him in the lurch? "'One of us will stay with you, of course?' asked Sir Andrew, after a while. "'Yes. I want Hastings and Tony to take the child to Mount, then to make all possible haste for Calais, and there to keep in close touch with the daydream. The skipper will contrive to open communication. Tell him to remain in Calais waters. I hope I may have need of him soon. And now to horse, both of you.' he added gaily. Hastings, when you are ready, I will hand up the child to you. He will be quite safe on the pillion, with a strap round him and you." Nothing more was said after that. The orders were given, there was nothing to do but to obey, and the uncrowned King of France was not yet out of danger. Hastings and Tony led two of the horses out of the spinney. At the roadside they mounted, and then the little lad, for whose sake so much heroism, such selfless devotion, had been expended, was hoisted up, still half asleep, on the pillion in front of my Lord Hastings. "'Keep your arm around him,' admonished Blakeney. "'Your horse looks quiet enough. But put on speed as far as mount, and may heaven guard you both.' The two men pressed their heels to their horses' flanks, and the beasts snorted and pawed the ground, anxious to start. There were a few whispered farewells. 
two loyal hands were stretched out at the last, eager to grasp the leader's hand. Then horses and riders disappeared in the utter darkness which comes before the dawn. Blakeney and Foulkes stood side by side in silence for as long as the pawing of hoofs in the mud could reach their ears. Then Foulkes asked abruptly, "'What do you want me to do, Blakeney?' "'Well, for the present, my dear fellow, I want you to take one of the three horses we have left in the spinney, and put him into the shafts of our old friend the coal-cart. Then I am afraid that you must go back the way we came.' "'Yes?' "'Continue to heave coal on the canal wharf by La Villette. It is the best way to avoid attention.' After your day's work, keep your cart and horse in readiness against my arrival, at the same spot where you were last night. If, after having waited for me like this for three consecutive nights, you neither see nor hear anything from me, go back to England and tell Marguerite that in giving my life for her brother I gave it for her. Blakeney! I spoke differently to what I usually do, is that it? he interposed, placing his firm hand on his friend's shoulder. I am degenerating, folks, that's what it is. Pay no heed to it. I suppose that carrying that sleeping child in my arms last night softened some nerves in my body. I was so infinitely sorry for the poor mite, and vaguely wondered if I had not saved it from one misery, only to plunge it in another. There was such a fateful look on that one little face, as if destiny had already writ its veto there against happiness. It came on me then how futile were our actions, if God chooses to interpose his will between us and our desires. Almost as he left off speaking, the rain ceased to patter down against the puddles in the road. Overhead the clouds flew by at terrific speed, driven along by the blustering wind. It was less dark now, and Sir Andrew, peering through the gloom, could see his leader's face. It was singularly pale and hard, and the deep-set, lazy eyes had in them just that fateful look which he himself had spoken of just now. "'You are anxious about Armand, Percy?' asked Foulkes softly. "'Yes.' He should have trusted me as I had trusted him. He missed me at the Villette gate on Friday, and without a thought, left me, left us all in the lurch. He threw himself into the lion's jaws, thinking that he could help the girl he loved. I knew that I could save her. She is in comparative safety even now. The old woman, Madame Bellomme, had been freely released the day after her arrest, but Jean Lange is still in the house in the Rue de Charon. You know it, folks. I got her there early this morning. It was easy for me, of course. Hola, Dupont, my boots, Dupont! One moment, citizen, my daughter. Curse thy daughter, bring me my boots. And Jean Lange walked out of the temple prison, her hand in that of the lout Dupont. But Armand does not know that she is in the Rue de Charon? No. I have not seen him since that early morning on Saturday, when he came to tell me that she had been arrested. Having sworn that he would obey me, he went to meet you and Tony at La Villette, but returned to Paris a few hours later, and drew the undivided attention of all the committees on Jean Lange by his senseless, foolish inquiries. But for his action throughout the whole of yesterday, I could have smuggled Jean out of Paris, got her to join you at La Villette or Hastings in Saint-Germain. But the barriers were being closely watched for her, and I had the Dauphin to think of. She is in comparative safety. The people in the Rue de Charon are friendly for the moment. But for how long? Who knows? I must look after her, of course. And Armand. Poor old Armand. The lion's jaws have snapped over him, and they hold him tight. Chauvelin and his gang are using him as a decoy to trap me, of course. All that had not happened if Armand had trusted me. He sighed a quick sigh of impatience, almost of regret. Foulkes was the one man who could guess the bitter disappointment that this had meant. Percy had longed to be back in England soon, back to Marguerite, for a few days of unalloyed happiness and a few days of peace. Now Armand's actions had retarded all that. 
They were a deliberate bar to the future, as it had been mapped out by a man who foresaw everything, who was prepared for every eventuality. In this case, too, he had been prepared, but not for the want of trust which had brought on disobedience akin to disloyalty. That absolutely unforeseen eventuality had changed Blakeney's usual irresponsible gaiety into a consciousness of the inevitable, of the inexorable decrees of fate. With an anxious sigh, Sir Andrew turned away from his chief, and went back to the spinney to select for his own purposes one of the three horses which Hastings and Tony had unavoidably left behind. "'And you, Blakeney, how will you go back to that awful Paris?' he said, when he had made his choice and was once more back beside Percy. "'I don't know yet,' replied Blakeney. "'But it would not be safe to ride. I'll reach one of the gates on this side of the city, and contrive to slip in somehow. I have a certificate of safety in my pocket in case I need it.' "'We'll leave the horses here,' he said presently, whilst he was helping Sir Andrew to put the horse in the shafts of the coal-cart. "'They cannot come to much harm. Some poor devil might steal them, in order to escape from those vile brutes in the city. If so, God speed him, say I. I'll compensate my friend the farmer of Saint-Germain for their loss at an early opportunity. And now, good-bye, my dear fellow. Some time to-night, if possible, you shall hear direct news of me. If not, then to-morrow, or the day after that. Good-bye, and heaven guard you. God guard you, Blakeney.' said Sir Andrew fervently. He jumped into the cart and gathered up the reins. His heart was heavy as lead, and a strange mist had gathered in his eyes, blurring the last dim vision which he had of his chief standing all alone in the gloom, his broad, magnificent figure looking almost weirdly erect and defiant, his head thrown back, and his kind, lazy eyes watching the final departure of his most faithful comrade and friend. End of chapter 21